Julia lost her mom very suddenly, six days after Mother's Day, when she was only eight years old. It wasn't until her late 20s, early 30s, that she actually began processing this immense loss and coming to understand it as a trauma. If you are a regular listener and are enjoying the podcast, can you please go to the show and leave a rating and review? I'd really appreciate it. And now, Julia's story. Hi, this is Beth, and welcome back to the Daughters Without Moms podcast. Today I have with me Julia. Um, lots of you may know Julia already from Instagram. She is the face behind Girl Meets Grief, um, and she started that just over a year ago, but already has developed a really good presence on there. And um, I believe were we both also part of the Mother's Day um with Lindsay, Lindsay yes. Joy, yeah, yes. Oh, so, yes. yeah, I did that this this year. It was my first one. That was yep. really nice. Me too. Me too. Yeah. And so I, I think maybe maybe you replied to. I did put a thing in that to the people who were else also on that Mother's Day post. Um, and Julia has agreed to be here today and share the story of her um, mother loss. And so. I will turn the mic over to her and let her introduce herself and tell us her story. And then as always, I'll come back with some questions at the end. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I, it's funny. I forgot about that connection before you mentioned that. And because actually um, very inconvenient timing that that weekend of Mother's Day, my Instagram account was mistakenly shut down. <laughs> so I had, yeah, I had, you know, um, I love Lindsay Joy and from the Joyful Jewelry Box, and I had been in touch with her about that, and I sent her my photo and the whole thing, and then I couldn't even see the collage on Mother's Day because a few days before, um, I think this was the second time this had happened, I got this notification, like something about community guidelines, or it was erroneous, but somehow my account was, was like shut down. <laughs> so over that weekend where I was really you know, looking forward to having that, that avenue of support from, you know, people like yourself and Lindsay Joy and that whole community, I, I really missed out on that, which was really unfortunate. Um, but I'm glad to be here. And, you know, I'm glad that we connected. And I mentioned before we, you know, started recording that I got one of your postcards for Mother's Day, which was just such a nice thing, because as I was saying to you, you know, I'm not new to this. I've I've been without my mom for 27 years, going on 28 next year, and um, it just it never fails to to surprise me every year just how hard it can be, and it doesn't matter you know how much time has passed, and it's so unpredictable from one year to the next. You know, so one year I'll feel like, you know, I'm never happy on that day per se but some years I'm like okay I'm a little bit more okay this year and then other years depending on what's going on in my life or um you know the year I got married a few years ago was a really tough year for example um it just you can't predict how it's going to affect you so just to get that postcard and just have somebody say like I see you and I'm I'm thinking of you and you're not alone is huge because you know, I've said this before in other podcasts and conversations, I think we know deep down that we're not alone. We're not the only motherless daughter out there. Um, but when you're sitting in your own 
sadness in your own story, it can feel very, very lonely. So, um, so as you mentioned, yeah, I started Girl Meets Grief Mother's Day weekend last year, um, really on a whim. It wasn't something I had thought about or planned. Um, I mentioned to you, I was doing an interview with the Got Grief podcast that weekend in the UK. And I think I talked to them literally right before I was heading to the cemetery for Mother's Day. Um, and I should mention that my mom died six days after Mother's Day in 1995 when I was eight years old. So um, that is just a really, really heavy month every year. And it's like, I describe it, you know, I'm sure we've all heard this phrase, the body remembers, but the month of May is like the epitome of that for me because it's literally like April ends and then flip the calendar to May 1st and I just feel it in my bones and in my body and in my heart and in my soul everywhere. It's just heavy. Um, and it's just that anticipation, which can sometimes be, I think, worse than the day itself, right? Like just all the lead up and the, you know, and terms of Mother's Day, like seeing the cards everywhere and the commercials and starting to get the marketing emails and all of these things just kind of like poking at you, like as if you could forget, right? But here's another reminder and another one and another one. Um, so I was, you know, in that headspace at that point when I did that podcast, when I started my Instagram of just, as I mentioned, just that lonely feeling of like, I feel like I'm the only one, even though I know that I'm not, you know, um, and so that's, that's kind of where I was at. And I just felt like with, you know, the Instagram account, it was just, okay, I'll write, you know, share some things that I've written, or I, I didn't really see it going anywhere. I just thought, um, why not, you know, I'll just do it and see where it goes. Um, so, you know, to see how much it's grown in, in a relatively short amount of time, I mean, I put a lot of time into it, but it's pretty crazy <laughs> to see how it's kind of evolved and, um, has become really a special and important thing to me just to connect with people and, and feel that, um, to, to feel less alone. Like I said, you know, to just meet other people that have you know, you can never compare losses and say like, you know, exactly how somebody else feels, but just to hear those stories and, and that sort of like me too feeling like I feel that way too, or I've felt that way before, um, is really powerful. So I'm thankful that I've had that community. And again, to not have it mother's day weekend was really, really <laughs> awful timing because, you know, when I started it over mother's day weekend, obviously I had I was working from the ground up. So it's not like I had this community to sort of lean on over that weekend. It was just, just getting started. And so this year was like the first year that I was just really excited to have that, um, that support because I think as time goes on, you know, like I said, it's been 27 years, people go back to their lives and people assume like you're okay and you're fine because it's been so long. And you were eight and you're 35 now. And how could that still, I'm doing air quotes, <laughs> still be so hard. Um, and so I think that that continuous support can really be lacking in our personal lives, when it, especially with long ago loss, when it wasn't six months ago, a year ago, two years ago. 
you know, what I've seen, even in those short time spans, people, people expect you to go back to normal. So when you're at 27 years, it's like, you know, I'll be grateful and um, lucky if I get one or two texts just acknowledging Mother's Day or my mom's anniversary on, on May 20th. Um, so every year that's kind of, you know, a tough spot where it's like that loneliness creeps in again. And it's like, I, I don't feel like I'm getting that support that I really need um, as much as I would like to, to sort of help carry me through that, that entire month, really, because like I said, it's like the lead up to Mother's Day and all of that constant exposure. And then that comes and goes. And then it's like, oh, now I still have her anniversary. Um, and that's part of the reason I, I choose one of those days to go to the cemetery. I don't want to be, you know, I've, I've really tried to not get into this headspace of like, the cemetery is where my mom is and that's where I have to go to feel close to her or talk to her because I like to think of her as just being with me and all around me all the time and if I want to talk to her I can talk to her you know I don't have to go to her grave to do that um, but it's hard because you know I she's buried in my hometown and of my immediate family I'm the closest one that still lives within a reasonable distance of that cemetery so I don't want to not go or not acknowledge that um, but I also don't want to be kind of reliant on that, like I said, in terms of that ongoing relationship with her um, being tied to that. So I will usually go, you know, either for Mother's Day or her anniversary somewhere in that time frame. And then her birthday is actually coming up next week, um, October 25th. So that's when I'll usually go again and just, you know, just to, I say visit, but again, I don't think of it like, I'm visiting her because that's in my mind, not where she is. She's, she's with me and in me and all around me. Um, but it's just that, again, that sort of acknowledgement and that sort of tangible um, representation of her, I guess. So, um, so that's just a little bit of <laughs> scratching the surface, I guess. Um, but to, you know, to kind of go back to, her death. Um, again, I was I was eight years old, and it was incredibly, incredibly sudden. Um, and again, there's no, you know, one thing I've learned in my grief training and and grief support and grief education work in my Instagram community. There's no, like I said, comparing losses. So it's not a matter of my losses easier or harder or better or worse. It's just different. So um, you know, when I say it was very sudden that's never to um, lessen anybody who had a loss that wasn't sudden or who had some sort of warning or they were diagnosed and they were sick and they knew it was coming. At the end of the day, that doesn't, um, that's not going to soften the blow of grief, right? A loss is a loss. They're still gone. We're not getting them back. Um, but, you know, to lose her in such a sudden um just completely life-altering manner for both myself and my family and at such a young age uh, was really, you know, going back to what I said about people expecting you to, to, to be okay so far out from the loss or, or to not still be having a hard time with it. It's like, you know, the more I've thought about this over the years and into adulthood, it's, I don't see how that could not affect you for the rest of your life when you lose such a 
important, really the most important person in a little girl's life um, at such a formative age, in an age where you can't even fully understand the, the permanence of that and the weight of it. It's just like they're there and then they're gone. And um, I still, you know, I still have a hard time talking about it because I don't think I ever grasped what that meant at the time. You know, it was just literally the last photo I have with her is from Mother's Day that year. Um, and for her to just be smiling and happy and seemingly healthy and then just ripped out of my life six days later, um, that will never not be just completely mind blowing to me, you know, not just for myself, but just as a general concept, I struggle with how somebody can be here and with us and happy and smiling and we have photographs and, and then they're just not here. <laughs> it's just a very, um, and again, that's the piece where it doesn't matter how long ago it was, how old you were, how old they were, the circumstances. I mean, there's nothing that makes that hurt any less. There just isn't. Um, so I was, again, eight years old. My, my only sibling, my oldest, my older sister was 12. So I had just turned eight that March, um, almost exactly a, um, two months prior to my mom's death in May. And my sister was uh, 12 going on 13 that August. So we were, you know, at very different places in our lives and, and surely that um, impacted how we process that loss or, or didn't in my case, because I've learned over time that, you know, cognitively, developmentally, um, mentally, emotionally, I wasn't really able you know, at that age to, to fully grasp or process that loss. Um, and again, the, the permanence of it and understanding that, you know, I think a lot of times with children, it's like, I remember, there's not a lot that I remember from that, you know, time frame in my life, but I just vividly remember thinking it was a dream. And I guess that's how, you know, the, the best way a child can make sense of that is like, oh, this is a bad dream. I'm going to wake up and she's going to be there again. And I remember for a long time telling myself that. Um, and I guess, you know, that again, that's, that's the best way a child knows how to cope with something like that is to, to find some, some way to make some sense of it or, or explain it or um, to try to tell yourself that it's not permanent. And so um, I think it took a really long time to, to sort of grasp the, the gravity of that. And um, before I get too far off, off course and, you know, forget to, to mention this, it ultimately what my mom died of was an adrenal tumor, which nobody knew she had um, completely came out of the blue. I just remember, you know, going to bed one night, normal night, you know, parents tucked us in, put us to bed and just waking up at some point to hearing my mom crying and in a lot of pain and seeing my parents' bedroom light on at the end of the short hallway. And just, again, it felt like a dream, you know, that that was the only thing I could think of to explain like what's happening. It, I must be, it must be in my head. I must be imagining it or dreaming it. 
Um, and I think I, you know, briefly fell back asleep and then it just sort of, it's, it's a very, uh, blurry sort of memory for me. And again, I think part of that is due to the age that I was, but, you know, I remember thinking there were police officers in my house and maybe there were, but I think it was probably an EMT, but I remember seeing somebody in a uniform and thinking like, what's going on? Why are there police in my house? Um, And again, an eight-year-old probably doesn't know what an EMT is, but they probably know what a police officer is. So you see, you know, a man in a uniform in your parents' bedroom or in the hallway or whatever. And that's kind of the first thought I had was, oh, something bad is happening. There are police in my house. And, um, you know, next thing I know, my dad is scooping me out of bed and bringing me into my sister's room. And, and uh, again, she was 12 going on 13. So old enough to, to sort of take care of me or, or be home with me alone. And, you know, telling us that something mommy's sick or something's wrong and that he was going to take her to the hospital um, and to go back to bed and for me to stay in her room and, and whatever. So um, again, you know, I don't think we grasped at the time that anything that serious could be wrong. It was kind of just like a child's brain again. Oh, mommy's sick. She needs to go to the doctor, right? Um, So that's what I thought, went back to sleep. And, you know, at some point woke up to hear her crying again. And, you know, what, what I later learned happened is my father brought her to the emergency room and she was kind of presenting with flu-like symptoms, um, you know, chills and, and all these things that they sort of just dismissed as the flu. And I don't remember, you know, if the emergency room was like packed that night and there were like really serious cases happening and they kind of just shrugged it off and sent her home. But my father brought her home and she continued to deteriorate, you know, throughout the night. And he finally called an ambulance. And um, that that is the last memory I have of her is peering out, you know, my sister's bedroom window and seeing an ambulance in the driveway and seeing her being loaded into the ambulance. And again, you know, I didn't have the capacity at that age to ever stop and think I'll never see her again or, or she's not coming back. Um, so um, she didn't, <laughs> she did not come back. And, you know, I didn't get to see her in the hospital and say goodbye. That was a a very difficult choice that my father was then faced with of, you know, my understanding is that she essentially went into a coma, I believe in the, in the ambulance as, you know, before they left the house and um, he had to eventually make that decision, you know, of, do I want the last image my daughters have of their mother to be laying in a hospital bed, you know, not even really aware that they're there and not able to talk to them and hooked up to machines and wires and all of that. And, you know, there were many years that I struggled with that and and feeling robbed of, you know, I guess that closure or or having that goodbye or, you know, um, and as I've gotten older, I can appreciate how difficult of a decision that must have been for him to make. And, that he was just trying to protect us, you know, from, from seeing that and having to remember that, um, you know, not that 
seeing her being put into an ambulance is a great last memory to have either, but um, he didn't really have control over that, whereas I think he felt he had some degree of control over whether we went to the hospital and saw her. And, um, you know, one thing, another thing as I've um, gone through life and, and grown up and become an adult that pretty fairly recently really started to strike me and that I had never really thought about. I always thought of the loss from my own perspective and what I lost and what my family lost. And um, again, how awful that was with how sudden and unexpected it was and how young my sister and I were and all of that. But, you know, sometime fairly recently, I suddenly had this thought and it it was, I can sort of um, repeat to you, the thought just came into my brain and it was the only thing sadder to me than losing her in the way that I did and my family did is thinking about how she felt knowing that she was going to leave us and that we were going to lose her. And <laughs> that just kind of shattered my heart. It really did. Um, because what my dad, you know, eventually told us is that her last words to him were something along the lines of take care, what about my girls or take care of my girls? It's like, we were the last worry that she had, you know, on this earth and in this life. And that just really stays with me in terms of the power of her love for us as a mother, you know. Um, she clearly had to know at that point that something was, was very wrong um, and that she might not survive. And she was worried about us, you know, not about herself. So... I just, I think it took me a lot of years of getting more perspective on things and maturing and just thinking outside of my own, you know, experience and my own perspective to really have that sort of epiphany. And it just kind of like broke me open <laughs> because it was just kind of thinking of the whole situation and the whole loss from her standpoint and how she must have felt um just again knowing she was probably leaving us and there was nothing she could do about it and she wanted us to be okay in the training I've done and you know we were talking recently in in Claire Bidwell Smith's program that I'm doing currently about these different milestones and and um just points that we reach in life where it sort of reactivates that grief. And, and that's where I think people really uh, miss the mark when it comes to long ago loss. And again, that attitude of, well, it was so long ago, like, why is it still so hard? And why are you so upset on Mother's Day after 27 years, you know, just these sort of dismissive attitudes. And I think what people miss with that is, you know, I call it the grief boomerang. It's like, it just keeps coming back and back and back. Um, with different 
life situations and events and milestones. And like I said, when I got married and all these different things over the years that my mom has missed, when I really think about the fact that I only had eight years with her and I've now lived almost 28 years without her and all of the things, you know, that she has missed out on graduations and proms and birthdays and holidays and my wedding and my sister's wedding and my nieces, you know, coming into the world and being a part of their lives. Um, it's a lot, you know, to kind of grapple with and, and it doesn't go away and it just keeps coming back up in different ways. And um, what we were talking about in Claire's program recently was, you know, reaching the age that your mother was when she died. And my mom was 45 and my sister just turned 40. And in the back of my head, I'm like, I'm just looking at my sister because as an eight-year-old, 45 seemed old to me, right? Like I couldn't grasp how young she was. And I'm looking at my sister who's now 40 with two young daughters. Um, and just, it blows my mind to think of her being gone in five, you know, five years from now. And I look at myself and I'm like, I'm 35. That's like, if I were to die in 10 years. Um, and so as those kind of things approach, um, you know, it's a whole other, just again, that reactivation of that grief and, and that loss and all of the different, um, ways that that just kind of keeps coming back up to the surface and, and manifesting itself. So, um, so can I ask what got you started um, in the grief arena? You're, you're a grief support specialist and a certified grief educator. Um, like I know for me, it was losing my last, my, my sister was my last mm. living person in my immediate family. And that was in 2020. And that just made me like start thinking so hard about loss and grief. And, mm. and to be honest, I still have not like Amy was just in 2020. So I, I kind of went back to my mom, which was in 1983, you know, yeah. um, because even though it was long ago loss, it was, it's her loss is more of a scar for me than mm. a wound. You know, they mm -hmm. say you, you can't teach from a wound, but right. you can teach from a scar. Right. So did you have something that um, caused you to be like, huh, like, I find this really interesting. I find like mm -hmm. we do a really crappy job of doing this and I want to figure <laughs> out some way to help people do it better. I mean, one thing that I failed to mention, my mom was by no means my first or my only loss in my life. She's certainly been the most impactful and, and the biggest loss that I've experienced. But, um, you know, before she died, my father had lost both his father and his only brother to cancer. So one of those was when I, before I was even born, my grandfather, and then my uncle was when I was maybe three or so. And he had two young daughters as well. Um, very much younger than my sister and I were. And again, it's not a matter of comparison, but just to say that, you know, they have even fewer memories. And so my father, you know, when he lost his wife had already lost his brother and his father to the same disease. And um, my freshman year of high school, um, just before the events of 9-11, 10 days before that, I lost a friend who was riding his bike and was hit by a car and killed. Mm. Um, and I still vividly remember getting that news and being home alone and, and just 
like collapsing on the bathroom floor and calling my dad. He was out to dinner or somewhere and calling him just hysterical because, you know, over the years I found that I feel like these losses impact me in a deeper way than they would otherwise because of my mom. It's like, it's a very raw thing still. Um, and again, kind of just reactivates and triggers that, that grief from her death. And then uh, that May of my freshman year of high school. So that friend died in September, then 9-11 happened. And I remember thinking the world was ending. Like I didn't know what to make of all of that. And that was just grief on such a, a big scale for, for everybody. Um, and a family from my hometown was killed on one of the flights on 9-11 and their daughter was the youngest victim. She was, I believe, three years old. Um, so then it was, I was in chorus in high school and my chorus was singing at a memorial for them. And um, there's a, a, a nice sort of garden for them behind the library in my hometown. Um, so there was that piece of it, aside from that universal grief that everybody felt, it just hit really close to home. You know, to have a family, especially with such a young child, be a part of that and all of the awful events of that day. Um, so then that May, um, within a few days of my mom's death anniversary, her only sibling, my aunt, died. Um, she was, and it was a similar, similarly sudden and unexpected thing. And I did go to the hospital and see her and essentially say goodbye. But I remember just feeling numb when I actually found out. I mean, I think it was clear that that was probably the outcome that was inevitable. And, and I felt like I had some closure in seeing her in the hospital and, and sort of saying goodbye. But I remember when I actually heard those words that she had died, just standing there, like so numb. I didn't cry at first. I just kind of was like, this is happening again. You know, like mm -hmm. I, I didn't know how to process that. And I remember it took a very long time for it to really set in and for me to cry because it was just like, I, I think I was just in disbelief that, you know, first my mom and now my aunt a few days before her death anniversary. And I remember someone at the hospital saying, um, you know, she's trying to hold on as long as she can because she knows that your mom's anniversary is coming up. And, and that broke my heart too. Mm -hmm. um, so that was, you know, my freshman year of high school, those two, those two losses. And um, my freshman year of college, both, my, both of my mom's parents, who we had a, a bit of a difficult and complicated relationship with, um, both passed away. So by my freshman year of college, my mom and her entire immediate family were, were gone. Um, so, you know, I've experienced a lot of loss and, um, that's not even all of it, you know, family, friends, and, and different very sudden losses. That seems to be the theme, right? Like it's, mm. it seems like it's always pretty sudden. And um, so I think, you know, between my mom's death and all of these other losses that sort of like piled up on each other over time, I, it was, it was pretty recent in the last couple of years that I, and I'm very passionate about mental health as well. Um, so I had thoughts for a while of going back to school to be a therapist or something like that. And people will always say to me, even now, have you thought about being a therapist? <laughs> I'm like, I have, but you know, I think the, the financial piece of going back to school is what has really always held me back with that. Um, 
and I had this sort of, I hate to use the word failed, but the sort of failed endeavor into, you know, I had a, an epiphany one day of, oh, maybe I could do like the life coaching route. And then I wouldn't have to go back to school. I could maybe do some, you know, certifications or programs that um, wouldn't require me to, you know, take out a huge loan or any of that. And I just, that never really quite felt right for me. Like it just felt very unspecific and like, you know, life coaching has become not, not to um, diminish because there are plenty of people who are amazing out there, but it's become kind of like a buzzword. Like I'm a life coach and Mm -hmm. some some people are great and some people not so much. Um, And I didn't want to be in this space of like being, I, I felt I was having that imposter syndrome kind of thing of like, I know I have all this life experience and I can help people from that lens, but I don't feel like I have enough credentials or training to back it up. Or I just felt like a little bit aimless with it. So that didn't really go anywhere. And then one day I was just sitting there and something, and the only way I can describe it, and I've said this in other conversations with people, it's like my mom's voice, like descended from the heavens and just said like grief coaching and I had never ever thought about that before I didn't even know if it existed (laughs) just like I don't know how else to explain it it just came into my head out of nowhere and I felt like my mom somehow like placed that that thought in my head um and I found myself Googling all of a sudden I was like grief coaching. What is that real? Does that exist? Um, Because all I'd ever heard was, you know, life coaching, which again is a lot more kind of vague and less, less specific. And it just didn't feel right for me. Um, And I Googled it and that's how I ended up in my first grief training program, the grief support specialist certificate I completed. That's how I found that was just by Googling like grief support coaching or grief coaching. Um, and that sort of was what lit that fire. And once I did that program, I just loved it. And I was like, this is my thing. Like it just felt, it felt right. And, you know, you and I were talking before about how I'm a writer and all these things just sort of felt like a good fit for that sort of, you know, avenue. Um, so that's kind of how that started. And then I, heard about David Kessler's program I wasn't planning to do another one and someone from my last program was like you really should look into this one and um, I knew of David but I wasn't super familiar with him and then I realized like he's this like renowned grief expert and speaker and writer and um, I just I've always been a like look before you leap kind of person and struggled a lot with anxiety and I think a lot of that goes back to that early loss and that loss of stability and Um, I just became very afraid of change. I still am and Mm. just have a very hard time with that. But I've tried to get to a place of just, you know, saying yes to things that feel right to me and not overthinking it so much. So, you know, that's what I did with David Kessler's program. I was sitting there watching Netflix and I saw like the deadline is tomorrow. And I, I was like, don't overthink this to death until it's too late. Just hit register and and do it. And whether it's the financial piece, which is a lot less than grad school, <laughs> or you know the time aspect that's holding you back, like just do it, and you'll like leap, and the net will appear. Um, so that's what I did, and what I've tried to continue doing within reason. You know, I don't recommend 
doing that for every decision, certainly, and, and like reckless abandon all the time. But Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, in terms of this path for me, you know, opportunities that have presented themselves that I've found myself overthinking or trying to say, I can't do it and making excuses why I can't do it. It's like, nope, you're going to do it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You're going to figure out a way. Um, So that's, that's sort of, I think, a twofold answer, like all of the loss I've experienced, I think eventually led me to this place, but it took me a while to get there Mm -hmm. and to open myself up to that, um, that path for myself. And then, you know, just continuing to try to be open-minded about new opportunities and, and try different things. And I think there's also a level of maturation that you have to reach to be able to Mm -hmm. dig deep into your loss and your grief and acknowledge like you talked about that you never really grasped you know what that meant at at eight years old because how could you like our brains your brain as an eight-year-old doesn't have the capacity to understand what that means and I think that's a little bit by design Mm -hmm. because at eight years old you don't have the life skills necessary to know you know, what it, the gravity used that word too. use the gravity mm-hmm. of what it means to have a life without your mom. Um, so, I mean, I think for me personally, it was also just, you know, after being a mom myself and being married and getting older and you're only 35, I'm 52. I can just tell you, it keeps <laughs> getting better. At least for me, it has just kept getting better. Um, I, the, actually, the more I learned the, how much, the more I realize what very little I actually know. Um, mm-hmm. But I also have learned how to extend a lot more grace to myself for right. the judgment and shame that sometimes can be, you know, uh, wrapped around that loss at a young age like that. And that grief that you experience that a lot of times we hold it in because no other eight-year-olds just are, you know, are going to be around to have that conversation with. So, um, right. yeah. Yeah, and I think that's where a lot of that um, loneliness and isolation piece came in, um, in terms of not having anybody I could really relate to at that age. It was like I went back to school and everyone looked at me like I just felt like I'm the motherless girl now. That's my identity. That's what everyone knows me as. I mean, my school sent out, you know, small um, rural town and small school, they sent out a letter to like, let everybody know that, that, that this had happened to my family. And, um, while that was well-intentioned, I'm sure, you know, to go back into that setting and be around kids, my age who just had no, I didn't even have any grasp of that. I couldn't expect them to, you know? Um, so I, I just always felt very much like the other, you know, and, like the outlier and um essentially like I lost my childhood almost overnight it was like I was a carefree child like all of my friends and my classmates and then all of a sudden you're forced to um to try to make sense of something that again to your point you can't even mentally comprehend yet and it just as I said earlier, I don't know how anyone can think that that will not affect you in various ways for the rest of your life. It's just crazy to me um, to to think that (laughs) there's that school of thought of, well, you haven't gotten over that yet. And, you know, the thing I always say is, you know, 
love is forever and grief is forever. I'm never going to stop loving my mom. I'm never going to stop missing her and wishing that she was here. So no, I'm never going to stop grieving. Does that mean that I'm um, in acute, like incapacitating grief at this stage? No, but there are those days, like I said, um, Mother's Day or her anniversary from one year to the next might be kind of okay one year and then it might like hit me like a ton of bricks the next year and that's just the nature of it you know we don't get to pull the strings and decide you know what that's going to look like it's just it just is you know I hate I hate to say it is what it is because that's a very vague statement but it's just one of those things that just is and it just hurts and you don't have to explain or justify that or you shouldn't have to And the other crazy thing that you just reminded me, you know, talking about um, experiencing a loss at that age and, and, and not being able to make sense of that, it wasn't until, you know, I've been in therapy on and off throughout my life since my mom's death at different stages and different, under different circumstances. It was not until I was probably in my late 20s and found myself back in therapy when I was struggling um, with my mental health a lot, anxiety, depression, insomnia. I was in a pretty rough, um, pretty rough phase. And this was after a breakup and some other things had precipitated it. But, you know, again, it's, it's that reactivation, any kind of loss in your life, whether it's a breakup or whatever it is, can just like bring that back to the surface. And you might not even realize that's what's happening. But it wasn't until that point that a therapist actually looked at me and I was maybe 27 or, or somewhere in there and said that I had survived a trauma. And that it took me a long time to come around to that thought. And again, you know, Claire was talking about that recently in our training, like, there's this, um, this sort of pervasive attitude in society that like trauma is only reserved for certain deaths or certain types of situations. And, oh, well, your mom didn't die violently or, you know, whatever the example is. So that wasn't a trauma. And that was kind of the thought that was always in my brain. Like I never, I never made the connection with that being a trauma. And so it took me a while to accept that. But when I did, it really sort of was like a light bulb moment because it really helped me to better understand a lot of the things I had been feeling and experiencing. And, you know, I've realized over time, like my mental health struggles and my anxiety, none of that is random, you know, and that's another thing we've been talking about is the connection between grief and anxiety, which Claire wrote an entire book on, but that was like an epiphany to me too. It was like, wait a second, I'm not just like a very anxious person just by chance, <laughs> you know, right. like I I was essentially programmed at, at a young age when my brain was still, you know, developing to be afraid of everything, <laughs> whether it was a legitimate threat or fear or not. That's just how my brain from that point forward learned to take things in and, and processing. So it just, I think it put me in this like constant fight or flight type of mode. Um, and another thing that I often say is that, and I hear this a lot, especially with childhood loss is that you feel like a piece of you is forever frozen as that 
eight-year-old or whatever age you were, like there's this piece inside of you that is still that child that just needs their mom. And um, that's, it's a really tough thing to break out of when you feel like here you are like a grown woman and, and this piece of you inside is still like suspended in time kind of. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I just had an epiphany when you were talking about, um, about the age and the loss and about how like we don't have the capacity to understand it as an eight-year-old, but then you start talking about going back to school. But then the other side of that double-edged sword is that that you're not an eight-year-old kid anymore. You have been thrown into this adult situation. Your whole perspective has changed. And like you said, you know, it's hard to connect to other kids your age and things. So Mm -hmm. not only you you don't have the capacity to understand it, but then on the other side, you're not an eight-year-old kid anymore. Right. And you're certainly traumatic. Good Lord. Yeah. You're you're forced to understand it, whether you actually can or not. It's, it's your reality. And in one day, it wasn't like you took a four week course or anything. You went to bed one way and woke up a totally different person. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's huge. That that just reminded me, I, I, um, I've been hearing a lot about Anderson Cooper's new podcast and I just adore him and he has, you know, this new podcast centered around grief and he lost his father as a 10 year old and, um, lost his brother to suicide when they were both in their early twenties. And recently in the last couple of years, lost his mother. Um, and he had Stephen Colbert on his podcast who lost his father and two of his brothers in a plane crash, um, when he was 10 years old and he had a lot of just great wisdom about loss and grief and he was coming at it from a perspective of gratitude which I know is kind of a soft spot for a lot of people right when when we talk about having gratitude for grief and you know David Kessler refers to it as finding meaning and a lot of people get upset about that too because it's like well what could possibly be the meaning in something so terrible what like why would this happen and and what is this purpose or this meaning that I'm supposed to find in this And, you know, what he always says in terms of that is that the meaning is not in the loss itself or the, you know, and in the death itself, it's in us and it's in what we do after the loss and what we do with the grief. And it takes time, you know, you don't, you're not going to look at somebody in early acute grief and say, well, it's time for you to find some meaning in this now. Like that's not the time for that. But when you're several, in, in my case, many years, um, past a loss, I think it becomes easier to, to get this different perspective on it and see all of the ways that it has changed you in a positive way, despite the fact you never would have wished for it to happen. Um, and Stephen Colbert says, he says something about that, you know, having gratitude for my life includes everything, even the thing I most wish had not happened. Um, And I think that's so true. You know, it's hard to separate out like, I'm grateful for this. And I'm certainly not grateful that my mom died and I never would have wished for that. But I can also see how that made me a more compassionate, empathetic person. And these other traits that, you know, going through that instilled in me. Now, would I ever, you know, wish to lose my mom in order to gain that? No, you know, I'd always rather have her here. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but you know he talks about how grief he essentially referred to it as a doorway to another you because he says you're not going to be the same person on the other side of it and I just thought that was so beautiful it's um the meaning is in us you know it's it's never going to there's nothing that's ever going to make sense in terms of why did this awful thing happen to me or to my family and you know why did this person that I love so deeply get ripped out of my life I mean it's just impossible to um, to find that purpose or, or greater, whatever you want to call it for that. You know, when you're the person living it, it's like really hard to, to see it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we can find find those slivers of gratitude that he referred to in terms of what did we gain from that? Um, whether it's, again, being more compassionate, being more empathetic. Some people go on to start a nonprofit, you know, in memory of of their person. Um, Or, you know, in my case, in your case, sort of go down this path of wanting to help others with their grief. And I think there's value in that and, and beauty in that, despite the fact that we wish, you know, it's the thing we most wish hadn't happened. Well, my tagline is learning how to use grace, grit, and gratitude to grow mm-hmm. with grief. And my gratitude was more of just like the little daily things that happen. You know, unfortunately, in our culture, we're all about, you know, the, the big, big picture, big, <laughs> yeah. big cars, big houses, big careers, you know, all that yep. kind of stuff. But the gratitude, the things that kept me going on days when I was deep in the valleys of grief was the gratitude for the small little, like my cat rubbing Mm -hmm. up against my leg or my, you know, then young child coming to me to hug me and telling me Mm -hmm. that they love me. Um, Being able to, to, and I think because I had gone through that doorway and was on the other side, it allows you, your lenses to change and to see kind of, you know, what's important and what's not important and I also if my kids if any of you ever listen to this I hope one of the things (laughs) that they always remember about me is that one of my favorite sayings is don't use society's yardstick of success Um, Mm. because that will just continually set you up for failure and I also kind of struggle with the word happiness but I I like being content Mm -hmm. Um, and that's a, a feeling and and something that I strive for personally so yeah, my gratitude was just, you know, recognizing those small little daily life moments that a lot of times people just rush on by in the in right. our hurry, hurry culture, but that those are, when you look back on life, are some of the most meaningful moments. Yeah, um, and I think part of that, I mean, at least for me, is I think of that in terms of like, it, I hate to say it this way, but sometimes it's like those little things. I'm like, those are things that my mom didn't get to experience or that that was cut short for her. You know, she doesn't get to to live these little day to day contentment type or gratitude moments that you're talking about. And so I don't want to say that it's trying to live that for them or or, you know, obviously that doesn't take the place of them being here but I just have had that thought on some days where I'm like man I wish my mom could see this or she would really love this or um sometimes I'm just struck with the unfairness and like just the randomness that I wrote a post about this on Instagram recently like how 
I don't want to say every happy moment, but so many happy moments are are always tinged with sadness, thinking about the fact that your person has to miss it, that they're not here, that they didn't get to live longer and experience more of these things with you. Um, it's and and what I wrote is that it's like just feels so unfair and random. Like, why are they not here and I'm still here? And and sometimes you can feel some guilt in that way, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's a lifelong journey. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, I usually finish each podcast with if you have a, a final takeaway or something that you want to share with the listeners before we finish up today. You know, one thing I was reminded of this this morning when somebody shared a quote from Anne Lamott, who's one of my favorite writers. Um, and I don't have the full quote in front of me, but I, I reference this all the time and I've included it in writing that I've done. And, you know, just without having the quote verbatim, you know, she refers to, well, there's two things. There's one piece of writing or quote in which she refers to grief as a lifelong nightmare of homesickness, which really, <laughs> I, th- I think is a really um, succinct, you know, way to sum it up. And I've gone back to that thought and that feeling many times of just feeling like homesick for somebody that I will never have or see again in this life. And that's, um, I think that's the best way to describe that. You know, it's, it's that feeling of you want to go home, but you almost feel like you can't because it's, home was in that person, you know, to such an extent, and they're not here anymore. Um, But the other quote that I always, you know, reference and go back to from her refers to, you know, essentially, you'll never be the same again. And I think that's something people need to, to grasp more when it comes to grief is giving people that grace and that space to, to sit in that reality of like their entire life is different and it will never be the way that it was again Um, but the flip side of that is you can still find joy and you can still have a happy life despite that and she actually refers to that as learning to dance with the limp which I think is so beautiful and I um, I wrote a a piece for um, grappling with grief that was entitled learning to dance with the limp And um, it started with that quote from her, because I think that's just a beautiful way to describe it. It's like, you know, our lives will never be the same. And um, that's, that's reality, but it's also okay. You know, it's okay to acknowledge that and, and to not try to force ourselves to be a certain way or to be the person we were before or whatever that is. Um, you know, it's okay to acknowledge like this is the reality that I'm living and it's imperfect, but there's still beauty in it and I can still dance. It's just imperfectly, (laughs) you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that's something that I come back to a lot for myself when I find myself in these sort of times of feeling really down on myself or just down in general and missing my mom or whatever it is. It's like, you know, it's hard to, to not let that become your identity, I think. Mm-hmm. As I was talking about, you know, always feeling like I'm the motherless girl. It's, I've spent many years sort of 
challenging that for myself. Like I'm, I am that, but I'm also a lot more than that. And that's like a big chapter of my story, but it's not my entire story. Um, and I think it's a delicate balance, but our, our people that are no longer with us would want us to live a full life. And, you know, they are of course a part of that, but, um, but that's not the whole story and that's not how the story ends. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for that, Julia. Thank you for being here today. And before we started recording, I was encouraging Julia to keep to keep showing up in this way. Um, I think that she, she's got the trifecta of gifts, unfortunately, with the personal experience, but then also with, um, you know, her background in writing and communication, and then that you have, you know, completed some grief courses. I think, I think that I can't wait to see where the road leads you. So Thank you so much. Yeah, thank I'm you. so grateful to have met you and connected with you. And like I said, you know, just to have that, that connection with people that get it. And again, no one's ever going to 100% relate to your grief and your, your loss and your story, because that's so individual, but just to have somebody say like, I see you, I know what it feels like, you know, for example, on Mother's Day to be without your mom and to see other people with their moms and to walk into the store and, and have a display in your face and all of those things that you just kind of feel like you start to feel, I don't want to say sorry for yourself, but honestly, <laughs> sometimes mm -hmm. you do. It's like, why me? And so I appreciate having that, that connection and well, we'll do it again in 2023. We're doing more Mother's Day <laughs> cards. <laughs> Perfect. All right. Thanks again, Julia. If you'd like more information on my thoughts about the grief journey, please visit my website, www.yourgriefjourney.com. If you'd be interested in sharing your story on the podcast, please send me an email to daughterswithoutmoms at gmail.com.